Hello and welcome back to Cooking the Books with me, Jilly Smith, the podcast which takes us through four food moments from the books of our favourite food writers. It's about life through the prism of food and this week I'm with the word on Omani food, Dina Mackey. Once I left and I went to university, it was the complete opposite because everyone was from a different country and so everyone wanted to know the country that I was really from, not where I was born and brought up and I was just like, oh, now I need to re-educate myself and figure out who I am and to better understand my culture was to better understand the food. Her first book, Bahari, Recipes from an Imani Kitchen and Beyond, is out today, but it's been a long time coming. The Jane Grigson Trust Award, which she won in March 2023, is the annual pointer to the best of the brand new food writers before their books are even finished. And the world has been longing to see what the fuss is all about. I asked her how that felt. Yeah, I, know. I think that's the craziest part, is that you can win something even before the book is about, even before people know about it. So that was definitely, I remember when I even got told I was in the top three, I was like, what? But nobody's seen the book. Um, so that in itself is just like, incredible and then for me like the recognition more so for me was like oh my god people are actually interested in where I come from and they're so interested in Oman like Oman has never had this especially within the food world so I was just like so incredibly proud that people were recognizing it and you know falling in love with it the same way that I've been trying to educate people on online. It is extraordinary I mean I've been covering the Jane Grigson Trust Awards since it started actually um, and we've seen some really amazing winners coming out of there um, Dan Saladino, Angela Clutton, Gerd Loyal you know all of whom have gone on to do extraordinary things it's a real powerhouse isn't it in giving a voice but what's interesting about it, and you know, when I say I feel like I've known you forever, I, you know, I hear about those nominees before you know anybody else, obviously, because I'm on the press list. Yeah. But then, you know, going to the awards, seeing the win, and then hearing about the process, you worked with Emma Ball, your agent, yes. for a year on that proposal, oh, didn't you? Yeah. I mean, she was telling us it about it. She, she came in on my Zoom panel for the um, food writing retreat, How to Cook a Book. And she was talking a little bit about working with, with a writer. From your point of view, tell me about that process. That was horrible <laughs> in the sense that, <laughs> you know, it was almost a whole year of her toying and tweaking my proposal. And I had already spent at least a good six to eight months myself trying to bring together this proposal that I was happy with and thought was good enough. And it was obviously good enough to get it into her hands. But then the fact that she spent another nine to 12 months redoing things, making me give her more things. And I was like, Emma, this is just a proposal. Why are you making me sweat like it's the actual book? And she was like, trust me. She was like, it's all going to be worth it. She was like, I know how to get this into, you know, an eight, uh, like into a publisher's hands. And I want them to fall in love with it. And I want them to believe it's the real thing. She's like, I'm not bringing them something that's just a proposal. I want to bring them something that feels like the real book. And I just couldn't believe it. I was like, okay, if you say so. And then even she was really strategic because even when she wanted to pitch to publishers, she was like, no, it's um school holidays. I'm not pitching this week. And so I just kept getting delayed with her. And I was like, please, please let there be method to your madness. And there was. This was literally it. It proved how well she was, at, how good she was at her job. Yeah, I mean, you know, in a sense, it's a shoe in isn't it? Nobody's told the story of Amani food. Publishers are always trying to find 
the next big thing in publishing and an untold story of a place that sounds so exotic, Zanzibar and spices and oh my goodness. And it's been untold that that is the secret kitchens. It's the Claudia Roden. I mean, from your point of view, you let's tell a little bit of your backstory. You were born and raised in Portsmouth in an Amani community that that you know came way before you were born from Zanzibar. Now tell us the little bit of the the politics and the history. So um so my mother's family were all born and raised in Zanzibar. They moved to Portsmouth in 1964/1965 post-revolution. So um Zanzibar used to be part of Oman and it was known as the Sultanate of Oman and Zanzibar. And that had been, you know, it'd been Oman and Zanzibar for over 200 years. They were the same place and most Omanis had moved over from Oman to Zanzibar for a better life because Oman at the time was just arid, you know, arid land. There was nothing. Things didn't really grow there. Um, and if you wanted a chance having a future and to make, become a businessman, you moved to Zanzibar. So everyone was coming to the island because the island was rich in, you know, everything that it was growing from all of the spices, especially cloves. And also it was the gateway to everywhere. So if you're coming from Europe, Asia, Africa, you centered yourself in Zanzibar. Um, and so then what happened was Tanganyika, that's what, um, which is now known as Tanzania, invaded Zanzibar. They wanted to remove Oman from the island. And so you either had the choice to go to Oman or come to England. And what had happened was we had a sultan of Zanzibar and we also had a sultan of Oman. So, and they were both family members. So they both ruled each place. And so the last sultan of Zanzibar was unable to move to Oman because you couldn't have two sultans of the same country in the same place. He came to Portsmouth. So he came to Portsmouth. And honestly, till today, all of us are like, why? (laughs) Why did you pick Portsmouth? Because they all followed. Because being a small island, they all went to school together. They all knew each other. And so they decided Portsmouth. It was someone in the community who had studied here. And he um, really loved Portsmouth. And he so he told the sultan, he was like, you know, Portsmouth reminds me of Zanzibar. It's an island. There's a sea. I was like, no, there's no hot weather. There's no palm trees. Why, why are you guys coming here? And so they settled here. They were one of the first communities, um, ethnic communities to settle here. So they loved it and they just made Portsmouth their home. <laughs> I mean, it is extraordinary. And what's so lovely about that is the only Amanis in Britain all live in Portsmouth, don't they? Yeah. Yeah, literally. That's it. Why aren't there any Amani restaurants? How come we don't know about Amani food? It's so funny. So there were, there was actually one Omani restaurant in Cardiff, which is very, very random. Um, and that's because an Omani had had to go there with his family while he was studying. Um, and he had all of his kids there. So he decided to open up a restaurant because he missed home. But Oman in general is a very small population. Only recently we in, uh, became made up of three million people. So three million people with about a million living in the capital. And then the only reason you leave Oman is because you need to study or you're seconded for work but nobody wants to leave Oman they're so happy and comfortable they couldn't imagine just living their life somewhere else so you find the odd Omani somewhere but no one else no one else is like no we want to go back to our nice country with good weather well actually I mean you know it, it has a lot of um, African culture doesn't it in, in, in Oman yes. and I've been told by Yemesina Rabasalar and plenty of African writers that Africans don't tend to go out to eat at restaurants um, I think Yem- it was Yemesina no. who told me that if you go out to eat at a restaurant it's generally because you're taking your mistress and 
I love that. So, you know, kind of you cook at home, you cook for your friends, you cook for your family and you share your food culture, but only within your community. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's definitely... You decided to break that tradition. Um, I know. (laughs) Now, tell me about this. What I love about this story is that, you know, you didn't sort of feel very comfortable about who you were and who you were part of at school. You felt different. And it was only through food that you found yourself, which is a tried and tested uh, route to self-identity. Tell me that story. Yeah. So, I mean, like growing up in Portsmouth, apart from our community, I wasn't really exposed to any other communities except all of my friends that were from Portsmouth and the rest of England. And, you know, I only saw my community when we got together or we went to visit people's houses. But my mum had put me in a different school to everyone else. And so the only people in my school were blonde-haired, blue-eyed children that I didn't look like. And so I was just like, okay, we need to fit in. So for a long time, I I could have sworn I thought I was blonde and blue-eyed. Um, it was the only way. And I didn't even realize that I could speak another language. So I was always used to speaking Swahili at home with my grandmother, but I didn't, I never realized that and I never told anyone. So it was just kind of always something in the back of my head. And also during that time to try and explain to someone where Oman or Zanzibar was, was never going to happen. Like nobody understood, nobody knew. Dubai was just coming on the rise. So I could say, Oh, I'm from Dubai, you know, and people go, Oh, okay. But. I, you know, when I look back, I'm like, why did I tell people I was from Dubai? Like, no, I'm, I'm not proud of that. I want to be proud to be from Oman. So, um, it was just like, it was such a strange time because trying to educate my friends and also trying to fit in. And, you know, when you are that teen, you just want to fit in. You're not interested in exposing yourself and ruining your whole, you know, school time. So I did anything possible to just kind of blend. And for me, that meant, you know, just ignoring the food that we had, not talking about it. But then once I left and I went to university, it was the complete opposite because everyone was from a different country. And so everyone wanted to know the country that I was really from, not where I was born and brought up. And I was just like, oh, now I need to re-educate myself and figure out who I am. And to better understand my culture was to better understand the food. And of course, you then start cooking that food that your grandmother and your mother have been making and that you've just been absorbing through osmosis. And suddenly people go, oh, my Lord, what on earth is that? And you start telling that story. You know, we've heard it so many times, particularly on this show, but, you know, so many fabulous food writers have have made that same journey back to themselves through the food. It's, It's quite beautiful. I mean, tell us a little bit about what you found. Tell us what Amani food is. Omani food, you know, one thing I really learned, especially when I was doing the research, is there was no way to kind of say Omani food is similar or we have something that is similar. Because, for instance, if we look at like Italian food, when we instantly think of Italian food, we go to pasta or pizza. That That's our thoughts. But with Omani food, there was no way for me to pinpoint one thing that I could say was universally the same across the whole country. And that's purely because our history is very layered and you know we had a big influence of the Portuguese coming um in the like 17th century and they came over from India so they brought a lot of Indian influence with them too then we have a lot of influence from Iran um the rest of like the Middle East as well as East Africa so depending on where you are within the country will depend on what history came to you. Because for instance, the Portuguese only stayed in the north, so it only affected the north. But then down in the south, you were closer to Somalia and East Africa. So 
when I try and explain Omani food, I just kind of have to bring all of these countries together and say, you're going to experience a bit of that country depending on where you are. And it's so, so beautiful because till today you still experience that when you go to these places. Yeah. And plus you've got the, the influence of the nomads and the way that they yes. cook as well. So they bury yes. in the ground. And you've got, I mean, I would always say that Zanzibar reminds me of cloves. You know, we, isn't the, cl- yeah. isn't the clove in the flag in, in Zanzibar? Yeah. So the clove was, um, the clove was once in the flag and it was my grandfather's brother that actually designed that flag so there was their independence because what had happened it'd been a british protectorate and when the british left um in 1963 they had the chance to just kind of do their own flag so they designed a red flag with a clove in the middle um and they had it for a year before tanzania then took over and so yeah cloves are really significant to the country just because they just grew in abundance there yeah but it's cardamom that you say is the spice and and let's let's talk about that in terms of your first food moment uh this is the mandazi the coconut cardamom yes. beignet tell us about this one yeah yeah so mandazi oh like i always say this is a rite of passage if you want to be a proper zanzibari kid or even like if you're omani and you don't know mandazi then th- there's an issue there and basically i, I describe them as being beignets because it's the easiest way to kind of make them make sense um they're like triangles and you know you make them with coconut milk and you spice them with cardamom um, and you just make it into a dough and then you fry them and they're very sweet as well. And they are just our holy grail. Absolutely delicious. We dunk them in tea. We, we stuff them with jam or whatever you really want to stuff them with. And it's constantly something you will have. We always keep the dough in the freezer. Um, it is, oh, and as a child, you have to love them. And I used to hate them as a child. I hated anything with cardamom. So that was a really big issue for my grandmother. She couldn't stand that she had a grandchild that wouldn't eat anything with cardamom and Zanzibari food especially is filled with cardamom that's kind of like our I'd say it's our equivalent to vanilla um that's how we use it yeah yeah you use it in all your baking um yeah interesting do you think that that cardamom was literally a taste that you acquire as you grow up or was it something to do with that sort of sense of oh I don't want to be this person I don't want a taste of cardamom yeah do you know what I think it's such a bit of both because I don't know, because I look at some of my nieces and nephews now who are only like, who are half English, half Omani, and they love it. And I just couldn't get behind it. And I think it was part of me trying to remove anything that resembled us from from my food palette. And luckily, as I got older and I started like delving into learning about food, I then began to appreciate cardamom and really love it. And so now I use it in just about anything. It's interesting. Somebody needs to write that book, how your taste, your actual taste develops according to how you feel yes. about your self-identity. Um, let's go to Muscat. Now, Muscat is the yeah. capital of Amarnia. Yes. And yeah. you, we're going to a little burger bar on the Corniche and we're looking out at the sea, <laughs> which, of course, we haven't even talked about. Bahari means sea. And this yeah. is what brings it all together. So take us to the seafront in Muscat, to a little burger bar where we're going to eat some chutney. Oh, so this is one of my favorite places. And to be honest, you wouldn't even know that they sold burgers when you see it because it's literally just on our Corniche. And so, um, Muscat Corniche, this was the original old town Muscat. Um, there was once a time where you, once you came through the gates that brought you to the Corniche, you were stuck in there from sunset till sunrise. And this is a really important place where my father's family grew up. Um, and it, it is beautiful. Everyone just sits there and relaxes by, by the Corniche and adores it. And, um, there's this tiny little, it's called a coffee shop and they literally sell coconut water, 
coffee and random like knickknacks and snacks from there. But if you know, you know that he has in the back a tiny, tiny little kitchen where he's making these chutney burgers. And um, they used to be in the sandwich form. So they used to be very close to a Bombay sandwich. And it was um, it used to be filled with cheese inside and a chutney. And so now he puts in this patty, but the patty is absolutely disgusting it's not the thing that you want to eat but it's just paper because i tried i tried the patty by itself and i was like what is this but the patty once you have it with this chutney is what makes it so special and i fall in love and it cost me about 40p and I'm obsessed with it. And I started getting everyone obsessed with it. They used to just post on Instagram, like, you need to go try this. And so this guy constantly had an influx of people trying this 40p burger. You, I think he was so confused why I've got all these people coming to me. But I love it. And I spent ages trying to just get him to give me the recipe for his chutney. And so I just visit him constantly. And each time I visited him, he'd give me a different ingredient until I could like piece it together. But it's so, so special. Um, and it's one thing I had to bring into the book. And so I made a different patty because I was like, you know what? The patty, it's not about the patty. So we don't need meat. So I made a veggie patty, but insisted on getting this sauce perfect. And it's interesting that you say that, uh, you know, Instagram, you're posting on Instagram all the time, you're getting feedback. I mean, did that reach out to an Amani community in different countries? Did you get did you yeah. bringing everyone together from all over the world? I know, honestly, that's what, that's been one of the greatest things because I get messages from, you know, the odd Omani that lives in America, Australia, or, you know, happens to be somewhere else in England. And they're like, oh, you know, my mum is Omani, but I'm, my dad is English and we never knew about this. And I didn't know about this, but because of you, I now know so much about Oman because it's very mm-hmm. hard to find anything on this kind of global level for Oman. So everything that you do find is usually just, um, you know, uh, some Omani's cookbook, but you can't buy them outside of Oman. And, you know, they're not in production anymore and they're always done on a small scale. So yeah, yeah, this has been really special to be able to connect with so many people. Fantastic. I remember Olia Hercules saying that. I think it was about Summer Kitchens where she'd had so many people reaching out to her from all over the world for her previous two books. Um, that In Summer Kitchens, she sort of, said on Instagram, send me your stories. She got stories about from Ukrainians who had settled all over the world saying, thank you for, for putting our story together about who we are and who our country is. I mean, it's extraordinarily powerful, isn't it? And your third food yeah. moment is actually about recipes debated by different tribes. Yes. So in the book, we actually decided to use the real word for tribes, um, which is Kabila. Uh, Kabila or the plural is Kabail. Um, so yeah, 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 that's the, that's how you say tribes in Arabic. Yeah, Kabal. Yeah. And, and so this is the third food moment is about a, a dish that's loved by everyone in Muscat, but everyone makes it slightly differently. It's a, it's a fish curry, which you'd expect to yes. be the sort of the centerpiece of a, a place that is defined by its relationship with the sea. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Pablo, um, Pablo. So actually in Arabic, Pablo is pronounced bablo because we don't have a P in Arabic. Um, but so this is made by two specific tribes. Uh, one is the Baluchi tribe and one is the Lawati tribe. And so both of these tribes did originate in Muscat and they'd come. So the Baluchi tribes had come from Baluchistan because Oman used to, um, occupy a part of Baluchistan called Gwadar. And that was a port. Uh, it's very, very close to kind of the north of Oman. 
Oman. And then um, the Lawati tribe are quite a mix because some of them came from Pakistan, some came from Iran, but a lot of them came from a place called Sindh. And Sindh was in between Pakistan and Iran. Um, and so they all have settled in Oman for over hundreds and hundreds of years. And so these two make do make quite a few similar dishes, but there's this one dish, Pablo, which is literally a soupy curry because we have it with rice, which is why I call it a curry. But it's very, very soupy that you can just have it as a soup. And it's like a turmeric, lemony turmeric broth with um, kingfish or sometimes tuna. And, you know, one thing that I struggled when I was doing this book was trying to get good fish in the UK that could replicate some of these dishes because they they heavily rely on the stock of fish. And so it was quite a mission. Um, but this particular recipe, it's so easy to make. But yeah, both tribes always argue about which one is better. And so Baluchis tend to add in a few more ingredients. They'll add in like tomatoes. They'll also add in fresh coriander, whereas like Lawatis will say, no, you don't want any of that. It just needs to be very pared back and basic and it needs to be very, very spicy. And so I was toying constantly between both of them as which one was better. And they're both like perfect in their own way and I went I lent more towards the Baluchi one um just because I wanted the added ingredients but yeah they both came out delicious and it's something I love and it's actually really good when you are sick as well um but it's it's just so simple and so pared back your final food moment is you talk about Instagram and how you have to make everything attractive and you know you're talking about food that has been passed through down through the cultures that has traveled with people from all over the world to where they've settled to become who they are making it pretty is the last thing on their minds but you have to do it for Instagram tell me about that dilemma particularly through how do you pronounce this is it Mad- madruba yeah so madruba so madrubable so um yeah so this is an interesting one um i was i actually had to do it for a supper club i was hosting at a hotel in oman and my friend that was doing it with me he was like you know we should make these into balls a bit like arancini balls and i was like what he, i was like but that's not the dish and he was like yeah but you know what we can still keep the dish as it is on the inside of that ball without making it look or, you know, making it look more appealing. And this has been the hardest thing, actually, when I even began the whole Instagram journey. It was one of the things I wasn't sharing our food or I didn't want to share our food because I had no clue how to make it pretty. Because to us, when we see it, it's pretty because we know how it tastes. We know how it makes us feel. So that's where the prettiness comes to life. But when you're trying to get a friend who's never tried your food to eat it or just a stranger, you know, that's the hardest thing. You need to make it satisfying on the eyes. Um, and madruba is one of these d- dishes. So madruba is basically like a very overcooked rice. Um, and it almost becomes like a rice porridge, essentially. And you make it with chicken or you can make it with tuna. Uh, tuna is the most commonly eaten food fish in Oman because we have such big, huge, fresh tuna in our waters. And so then you also add in dried limes, tomato, uh, some coriander seeds and cumin. Um, yeah, and that's it. And it's quite rich in the dried lime, actually. So you really feel that, especially the next day when it's had time to settle. But again, it's just like a porridge and it doesn't look amazing. And so actually bringing it into the form of a ball made it so, so nice because you still got the texture that you wanted people to enjoy, but it was kind of hidden in this nice board. And I think it makes for a great way to kind of introduce the dish. And so I actually did it for a supper club I hosted at Soho House in London last year and everyone loved it. And you know what? I think if it'd been in a porridge form, everyone would be like, what is she giving us? Um, but because it was in that form, people just fell in love. Well, actually, Nigella, I remember her telling me about the the problem that everybody has on Instagram with brown food. But if you think about 
British food, most of the things that we love most are brown, beautiful casseroles in the middle of winter, you know, and all you need is words to describe the yeah. taste. And suddenly, as you say, it's the, the prettiness comes from how it makes you feel. Um, absolutely. Um, interesting that you are, um, doing adverts for Waitrose and Tesco about Amani food. There seems to be a movement, uh, in the, the supermarkets to get us being more inventive. Obviously it, it works in their favor to bring in different cultures but also to get everyone branching out and trying new flavours and uh, finding new markets. That's the cynical capitalist point of view. But um, actually, it really works, doesn't it? It makes Britain feel much more inclusive. Um, it brings different yeah. cultures in. So on Tesco, you're talking about Ramadan, you know, fantastic. Well, yeah. How do you feel about that big hug that's coming out from the supermarkets? Yeah, do you know what? It's really nice because I think like, in general, they need recipes. You know, we, we're always looking for recipes. It's never ending. And I just feel like there are markets they just haven't tapped into. So when I'm able to kind of introduce them to a new market of food and explain to them, you know, how it can link to other dishes they've had before or similar recipes and how their audience will engage with it. And they do really like it. It, it makes me so happy because it's like, oh, I'm actually getting to show my food on a bigger scale. I'm getting to teach people about Oman. You know, for me, the idea that someone might just try this recipe and then they want to book a flight to Oman is exactly what I'm after. Like, that's really what I really want to happen. And I just think it's so nice that they are open to it. They are understanding. Because at the end of the day, it's just more great food for them to add to their list. Um, and so it's really nice. And I'm always very careful that I'm always like, okay, let's, let's tread slowly. Let's just add in flavors and then let's add in a more well known dish from the region and in the country. And we just go from there. So it's always building blocks. And I've seen you being an ambassador for Aman on, you know, Sunday brunch and, um, you know, you've been on Saturday kitchen and you're, you know, you're really getting out there and it's, and it's fantastic to see your books launched, um, today this week, um, which is absolutely fantastic. And I have no doubt that you will really become the voice of Amani food and encourage other people to start talking about their cultures in a way. We'll find new secret kitchens uh, again, which can only be good for, for all of us. Yes. But how does that little Dina feel? you know, who lived in Portsmouth, who hid away who she was, telling everybody she was from Dubai and, and not Amman. Yeah. How do you feel that through your book, you've been able to get everybody else to go, wow, what an amazing place. Look at that gorgeous Corniche. I want to go to Muscat. I know. It, you know what? It feels so unreal. And I think it feels more unreal that it's me doing it. And I didn't grow up in Oman. I am technically an outsider to my own country, but also an outsider to the country I was born in. So it always feels very weird and very full circle. And sometimes I just have to catch a breath because I'm like, Whew, I did that, you know, like I, I went through all of those years of being confused and not knowing to being the one that can speak so confidently on the country and be the person you come to, to discuss the food and the culture. And I find that so special. And actually recently a friend who I went to school with, who I haven't spoken to in a long time, um, messaged me and said that she wants to do, have her honeymoon in Oman. And I was like, what? And I called my mom and I was like, guess what? I was like, a girl that I went to school with wants to have her honeymoon in Oman. And for me, that was the moment because I was just like, wow. I was like, everything that I sit here and preach about um, 
you know, is now coming around because the people that I went to school with, I was too afraid to tell, tell them I was from Oman. Now I want to come to Oman. And so for me, it's just, it's, it brought it together, you know, it's shown that actually people are very interested when you speak up about yourself and when you speak about, up about your culture and you become proud of it. So I think just, I just still can't believe that I've done it. Thanks for listening. Do head over to my Substack for extra bites from Dina and recipes from her food moments. And I'll see you next week. Thank you.